It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, where we pride ourselves on telling the truth and offering perspective. We keep growing by leaps and bounds. We get a lot of good feedback. But with that comes the occasional person that doesn't want us to tell the truth and wants us to issue propaganda. Not going to happen. We're here for a reason. Our platforms are the citadels of free speech. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Atassi, and Laura Johnston, and I got to see all three of you in person for the first time in ages. Lisa, we hadn't been in the same room since the Merrill endorsement interview. It's wonderful to see you. Wasn't it a great day in Cleveland? Oh my God, you couldn't ask for more perfect weather, and everybody was so happy to be there. Yeah, I, I got least... to meet Lisa for the very first time in person. <laughs> I can't believe that was the first time you guys crossed paths. Yeah. Wow. It was really cool. The whole newsroom was full. The, the windows were clean. We saw the parade and it was just, it felt like a really good day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it just, it's good to see people face to face before the next variant comes and we all have to mask up and can't see each other anymore. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, let us begin with our truth-telling. Our reporter, Laura Hancock, did a deep dive last week on the failure of the Ohio teachers' pension system to provide cost-of-living increases in 2017. Lo and behold, the pension system announced an increase Thursday. How much, Layla? They'll be getting a 3% cost-of-living adjustment later this year, and that's the first time since, like you said, 2017. The Board of the State Teachers Retirement System, which is known by the acronym STRS, approved the increase at its monthly meeting Thursday, and the raise will show up on retirees' pension checks on, the retirement, on their retirement anniversary date starting on July 1st, which I think is the start of their fiscal year. The board also included in its resolution a statement saying that it would consider additional increases in the future. It was it, The board was originally planning to consider a 2% increase, but the pensions actuary said the fund could afford 3%. So they opted for that for that because of inflation and to give retirees more because there's no guarantee of yearly increases in the future. And also, the resolution eliminated the requirement that teachers have to be 65 years old to retire, which was put in place in 2012. You still have to have 35 years of service, but if you achieve that at a younger age, you're eligible for retirement. So all of these positive developments, as you said, on the heels of Laura Hancock's remarkable reporting a couple weeks ago, shining that light on the problems with the management of the teacher's pension fund. Well, Laura actually came up to see the St. Patrick's Day parade because she'd never been in the newsroom for that yesterday. And I was talking yeah. to her and I said, my gosh, you should get a percentage. You'd... And she's saying, she, you know, she's very, very <laughs> cool. She goes, look, they were working on the 2%. Although if you read her story, they were hostile. But they, she said they were working on a 2%, but she will take the credit for the third percent that that they gave. I mean, if you go back and read her story, the the STRS people were not all, you know, fuzzy and warm. The, the most amazing part of this is they couldn't come up with a cost of living increase in the most robust investment market we've ever had. Yeah. I mean, if you can't come up with investment returns these last five years, you really don't know what you're doing. Although I do take issue, Layla, with that these are all positive reforms. One of the reasons they have trouble is they let people retire when they're 55 or whatever. Mm. That's ridiculous. You should not be able to retire till you're 65. That's what pension systems are designed on. I've never understood the whole public pension retiring when you're, you're still a kid. 
Yeah, yeah, but thirty-five years in, in any system is quite a—you know—you've you've paid a lot of dues at that point. So I I don't know I. You I got what, 41 what? years in ours, and I have no intention <laughs> of retiring yet. I'm not even close, so I'm, I'm just not buying it. Throwing the flag. Uh-oh. I think that was a weak move. <laughs> yeah, you know, what? The, the teacher, there are two teachers who are running for seats on the STRS board, and they released a statement saying that, you know, one ta- one, a one-time cost of living adjustment isn't good enough when the teachers have gone so, you know, so many years without one. So uh, so they're they're kind of saying, you know, not not – you know, it's, it's, it's nice, but not quite not quite there. Um, so it looks like the fight is continuing. Well, I, well, tip of the hat to Laura Hancock. Go ahead. Oh, no, I, just, I hate to be Debbie Downer, but, you know, unfortunately, because of inflation, these COLA raises may just end up just evening out. You know, it's not like they're really going to benefit a whole lot from this because of inflation, which is it's not keeping pace with inflation, in other words. Well, no, especially since they didn't get one for five years. Mm-hmm. They're falling way, way behind. It was inexcusable how this has played out. And Laura's story raised some very good questions about the management of that fund. Uh, so I, I this is all good. And we didn't do that story just because we thought of it. A whole lot of people asked us to do it. And then Laura delivered the most fully considered piece I've seen uh, to, to bring it together. And then they give the 3% raise. Hmm. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How does Ohio Governor Mike DeWine plan to fix the constitutional crisis that has crippled the Ohio election system because of gerrymandering by his Republican colleagues on the Ohio Redistricting Commission? Lisa, we talked yesterday about how Bob Cup and Matt Huffman are the villains. The Supreme Court has laid them out bare for refusing to do their job, refusing to do what the, the Constitution requires, refusing to follow the orders of the Supreme Court because they're selfish partisans. How does Mike DeWine say he's going to fix this? Very interesting to see whether this will work. Yesterday, he was at an event at Columbus State Community College, and he told reporters that he's calling for, you know, that there are two map makers that are being uh, employed by the Republicans on the redistricting committee. There's one map maker for the Democrats. He wants those three map makers to work together to create a fourth legislative map by March 28th. He says we need to put them in a room together, tell them to follow the Ohio Constitution and the Ohio Supreme Court ruling to draw maps in in public, hold frequent meetings between now and March 28th, and consider hiring an independent map maker. Well, the, the thing here is, too, Matt Huffman and Bob Cup. We didn't vote on them. They're, you know, the snidely whiplashes of this, and we have no control over them. We all did vote in the governor's race and the secretary of state's race and the treasurer's race and the auditor's race. Keith Faber, Mike DeWine, Frank LaRose answered to all of us. And the fact that they have refused to stand up before now and take control of this process is ridiculous. DeWine finally, months and months into it, says, okay, okay. I'm going to take control. That's what they need to do. There's three of them. There's only two of Cup and Huffman, and they should be working with the two Democrats. So he finally said he's going to do it. But we also, our our reporting yesterday, found that they're all being snake-like, trying to figure out if there's a way to go around the Ohio Supreme Court. Can they push their federal court suit? It is amazing how hard they are working not to do what's in the best interest of Ohioans. Right. Yeah, this legal challenge, which we talked about in the podcast earlier this week, there's a GOP activist 
suit out there. And the plaintiffs yesterday requested an emergency court hearing. What they want to do is they want to go around the Supreme Court, have a federal judge rule on the last legislative map that was rejected. They say that's the map that they want. And if it push comes to shove, then they will move the May 3rd primary. But they are really trying not to do that. Well, they have to now. There's no way. I mean, there was no way before this ruling that they could have the May 3rd primary. Now they have to. The interesting thing was, I was talking to Andrew Tobias, if they want to move it on an emergency, they need Democratic support. So they're also talking about, what if we make the election 90 days from now, then we don't need Democratic support. So already the Cup and Huffman contingent are working against the best interest of Ohioans. And this is, Mike DeWine needs to stand up and do, do his job. I do think this becomes an election issue now. If mm-hmm. we have to postpone this election for two, three months because Mike DeWine didn't do anything to fix this, then his opponent in November is going to say, what a lame-o. He, you know, <laughs> he's supposed to be the leader of this state, and he just sat with his hands under his legs and did nothing. Yeah, one, it makes you wonder why he suddenly, you know, grew his spine. <laughs> I'm not giving him that much. Let's see if he actually does anything. The words are one thing. Let's see if he stands up and does the right thing for Ohio. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How much money is Intel spending in Ohio on semiconductor education and research as it sets about building a huge factory outside Columbus? Laura, one of the things that you wondered when Intel said it was coming is, where are you going to get all the workers from? This is a pretty specialized, high-paying field. Now you have an idea of what they're planning to do. Yeah, absolutely. They want to give $100 million, at least of half of which will stay in Ohio, and they'll get another $50 million from the National Science Foundation. And this is the goal is to give all of the technology training that Intel is looking for when it's hiring workers for this $20 billion semiconductor manufacturing uh, complex. And that's obviously set to break ground by the end of the year. This was all announced at Columbus State Community College, and basically $50 million of the grants in Ohio will go to 10 years to over 10 years for researchers, technical centers, faculty, educators for training, fa- or educators for training those faculty, upgrading lab equipment and developing curricula, and conducting semiconductor research, as well as giving some student internships. And then the other $100 million is going to do the same thing all across the country because we're hoping to get a lot of people moving to Ohio because of this plant. Yeah, so if you don't have the workers, train the workers and bring them in. We could do that with all sorts of different things in Cleveland. <laughs> we have all these open feel- jobs in healthcare. Why aren't we donating money to training them? Well, we've talked a lot about um, programs over the year that Tri-C has added, or, you know, all of this technical training. And Houston's been talking about it. John Houston, the lieutenant governor, has been talking about this since the pandemic started. Remember, every time, you know, DeWine, Wine with DeWine would hand it over to him, he'd be talking about these great programs. I, I, I want to see the results, though. I mean, it's easy to say we're going to give money for this, but I want to see how many graduates are coming from this money. Well, you know, the and what jobs here- they get. But the difference is Intel needs these workers, so they have an extra interest in making sure this is successful. It's a lot of money. We will watch how it is spent. It's Today in Ohio. 
What happened this week in a cynical move in the Ohio legislature? Is there any other kind to help commercial (laughs) property owners avoid paying their fair share of taxes and putting a higher bill on homeowners? Layla, people would not know this if they didn't subscribe to Capital Letter, our state house and politics newsletter. You can subscribe at cleveland.com slash newsletters because that's where the item is. We have talked about this story, which is really one of the sleaziest things that I've seen in Columbus since HBC. Six, but but there's a move that I think might actually doom it. So what happened? So the Ohio Senate voted Wednesday to create a conference committee to negotiate differences with the House with the House on House Bill 126. This is the bill um, that would limit house house school districts challenge property values at county boards of revision. Ohio Senate President Matt Hoffman said he's appointing Senators Bill Blessing and Christina Rogner. Senator Kennedy, or Kenny Yuko, the minority leader, will appoint a Democrat. Two Republicans and one Democrat will also be appointed from the House. Huffman said he believes the two chambers can find the middle ground. Earlier this month, the Ohio House unanimously rejected the Ohio Senate's version of that bill. That's all 90 members voting against it. The version of House Bill 126 that the House did pass was to require local boards of education to give prior approval for each property value Uh, case that the district's attorney gets involved in. But when it went to the Senate, they dramatically changed it. So now this bill has been sent back to conference committee and Huffman seems to think the parties aren't too far apart on the thing, but a unanimous downvote, especially a bipartisan one, seems to suggest they are pretty far apart. So we'll see. (laughs) The thing was, this was sneaking through. Uh, you know, the commercial property owners, including some in Cleveland, had used their their ways to get the legislature to do something that's awful for Ohioans. It was to enrich themselves, make sure that they paid as few taxes as possible and put that burden on homeowners. But once it got through the House, I think people started to pay attention. We started to howl about this. Right. And and some of the people in the Senate are like, wow, I don't want to get tied to paying off commercial property owners at the expense of basic Ohioans. So I, I I think this is going to a committee where it could die, that that they're 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 moving it aside, pretending to try and find a way through, and we may not hear from it again. That would be the best thing. If this continues, we'll have to continue to howl. This is really sleazy. I would love to know, you know, you'd love to read the emails or or see what the communication was between the the commercial property owners and the legislators who were in their pocket because this is just scummy and and it shouldn't happen in any kind of government you know when they try to explain why this is a good thing they they just can't pull it off because it's bogus and you'd love to know how we got here so we could stop it from happening again right right what about the drop down llcs i mean that's what they were using you know these companies were using a drop down llc to pass the sale through that so it didn't look like there was a sale or they could hide the price of the sale did 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 the bill address that well what what the property owners were counting on is doing that so there wouldn't be a sale price that the assessment could be based on and then get a very low assessment that nobody could challenge. The, the whole thing stinks to the high heavens. I mean, the legislators involved in this, and I guess Lou Blessing is the guy that's got his face on it. It's just really bad. It's, it's You shouldn't do things like this that stick it to the voters. And they were going to until 
people got noisy about it, including us. We've been screaming about this. So I hope it's dead. And, and again, you'd love to know who were the legislators who had the hands in their pocket and how does this happen? Because it's bad news. And shame on the commercial property owners for trying to corrupt the whole system so they can make some extra money. It's today in Ohio. <clears throat> we continue to wonder how much money Cleveland must refund to people who worked from home instead of inside city boundaries. It's a work in progress, but reporter Sean McDonald has some early numbers. Lisa, how much have they paid back so far? Well, as, as far as uh, at the end of last month, February, they've paid out 381 refunds so far for this year. It's about evenly split between individuals and businesses. Um, so $2.1 million has gone back to Cleveland taxpayers by the end of last month. That was compared to only $900,000 in 2020 and 2021. Um, and as of Wednesday this week, I guess 2.6 million has gone back to people through March 2021. Um, Ohio Rita says that they've done 96 refunds so far at about $179,000. They have about 1,500 requests. About 700 of them are people who are working from home trying to get their money back from not working in downtown Cleveland. But the downside of this is that if you're working from home, you got to pay taxes in the city where you live now and, and are working. So the savings for some people may not be much or any at all. I don't know. I, it was a big conversation when we were all together yesterday for the St. Patrick's Day parade because a bunch of people are putting in for it. The this Cleveland does not make this easy by any means. It's confusing how you go through it. We've done a couple of stories about it, and it's still confusing. So, So I think there's a big wave coming, but if you live in a city where you pay – uh, to 2%, 2.5% income tax, but you only get a half percent credit for what you pay in Cleveland, you know, you're getting a couple of percentage points at your payback. Um, that's that's not nothing for people. There were, in our room yesterday, there were people calculating they're getting some major dollars back. So I think this number is going to grow and grow and grow, Lisa. I don't think it's by any means close to the end. Yeah, and I think people now are figuring out what their permanent schedule is. You know, people may be working from home more, you know, on a permanent basis. So I think now that they're realizing what their future is, there are going to be a lot more filings. The hassle with getting it back from Cleveland is you have to attach a tax return from your resident city showing you've paid your full share there. So people have to pay extra to their city, their own city now, while they wait to get reimbursed from the city of Cleveland. And that's a bit of a rub for some people because they don't have that money readily available. We'll continue to update that story. Keep track of it on cleveland.com and in the Plain Dealer. It's today in Ohio. One way to measure the wealth of a community is to look at the median family incomes. And reporter Zachary Smith has done just that with Ohio cities. Laura, where are the numbers high, where are they low, and what are the highlights in Greater Cleveland? Yeah, I think this list is fascinating because we also often see the list of the best schools or the most expensive real estate, but this is, you know, based on median household income for households with two or more people. And I was surprised to see some of the numbers. Like, I didn't realize Avon would rank quite a bit higher than Avon-like. Um, and University Heights is really high. 
Pepper Pike is the number one in our area, actually, and that follows after the Columbus suburb of New Albany, which has the highest in Ohio at 208000 a year. And obviously, that's where Intel's building, and that is a likely to go up. Seven cities are below $40,000. The, the lowest on the list is East Cleveland at about 30, not quite 34000 Cleveland is just a couple points higher at just about um, almost 40000 and uh, Pepper Pike has that about $200,700. So, um, yeah, it's a fascinating list that Zachary Smith put together from this first drop of the census. Yeah, we brought Zachary on in the past, what, month. He's, he's mm-hmm. our data reporter doing what Rich Exner had done, working closely with Rich Exner. Uh, and people love to go over stories like this. It's just it's a time. They spend time on it. You can see how mm-hmm. sticky those stories are because people stay with them longer well, than with others. Yeah, you look at where your city ranks. And just to be clear, no villages, no townships. So I couldn't look up where I grew up, which is a township. Um, You couldn't see Hunting Valley on this list Mm. because I'm pretty sure that would be pretty high. But my town is number 19. And I got to say, this week I was walking the dog past the high school. And not one, but two Range Rovers drove out of the parking lot driven (laughs) by high school students. And I was like, I drive a 10-year-old Accord. I'm just going to put that out there. Wow, 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 wow. All right, check out Zachary's story on Cleveland.com. It's Today in Ohio. Let's do rainbows and unicorns. What remarkable benchmark did Metro Health hit this week in the pandemic that is in its third year? Layla, let's talk about this quick before the Omicron variant B comes. <laughs> I know. We, can, we <laughs> could get, arrive any second. Uh, Julie Washington reports that for the first time since the early days of the pandemic, there were no COVID-19 patients in isolation at Metro Health. As of noon on Thursday, Metro Health had four recovering COVID-19 patients, but no active infections. Statewide, the Ohio Hospital Association reported 536 patients on Thursday, down from a pandemic high of 6,749 on January 10th. And in Northeast Ohio, in the region in general, there were 115 patients. The, this this is the region, of course, that consists of Ashtabula, Cuyahoga, Geauga, Lake, and Lorain counties. On January 5th, there were a record 1,754 patients in this region. So huge development there. Um, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, I don't know. Are we headed for another wave? Are we expecting Omicron B? Or as my husband likes to call it, Abercrombie. <laughs> I don't know. But let's just enjoy the moment and this yeah. good news while we have it, I guess. Uh, Layla, I, does it make you want to sing from Frozen? It's the first time in forever. Like, you go out and start twirling. Yeah. What, what's interesting about this is how predictable it was if you look at history. That the third wave of a pandemic is a flameout. It is so virulent and so contagious that that it expands quickly and because it expands so quickly and contracts quickly i mean we haven't had previous moments at metro health in the entire pandemic after each wave where we could say what layla just said but because of the way omicron the third wave exploded and hit so many people you do get back to to zero it'll be interesting now i i mean this the 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 one that's now hitting europe pretty hard and hitting germany it's going to come here because that's what it does. They're already detecting it in the sewage. 
what will it do? Will we all have to put masks on in a month again? <laughs> I, uh, I hope not. We'll see. But this is great news, so let's celebrate for, for a day, for a week. And I would like to know when I can get my second booster. My well, they're talking shot. about that. Uh, but the one, Moderna, has asked for permission to or approval to do that. I imagine Pfizer, if it hasn't done so, will do it. I'll be there the day I can get it. So right. <laughs> yeah. if you, you're here, let me know. Line I'll up, be... open the Wolstein again. I'll be in there. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Joe Biden's team put out its plan for consolidating, closing, and opening new Veterans Administration facilities based on our changing population patterns. And we learned Tuesday what that means in Akron and Cleveland. Lisa, are we growing or shrinking here? I think we're staying about the same, but it looks like a lot of things will be moved to a brand new uh Akron Healthcare Center, which is being proposed in this um, this uh, recommendation. This comes from the VA Asset and Infrastructure Review Committee, and they've been looking at all VA uh, facilities. So, yeah, that's the linchpin of the of the plan for Northeast Ohio, a new healthcare center in Akron. Um, what they're recommending also is closing the Cleveland VA Medical Center Ambulatory Surgery on Superior. They will relocate those services to the Cleveland VA and also to this new Akron Healthcare Center. They're going to upgrade the Lewis Stokes VA Primary Care Clinic. They're going to be starting this spring. They're going to be adding exam and mental health consult rooms and enlarge their ER department. They're going to be closing the Summit County Outpatient Services. Those will be also moving to the Akron Healthcare Center. And then the the uh, the uh, Akron VA Clinic, I can't read my own writing, on Waterloo is going to also relocate to Akron. So they're, they're trying to consolidate this in the Akron-Kenton area. Apparently a lot of veterans live in that area, and it's still close enough to Cleveland. No sooner did this list start to go out before you started to see protests in cities across the country that are having losses. And one of the brilliant things our government did with these kinds of thi- this kind of thing and the military base closures is it's an up or down vote. There's no, when, when it goes to Congress, they don't get to pick and choose. They either vote for it all or they reject it all, and it cuts out some of the, the silly parochial arguing it's a smart move you've got to do this kind of thing our population patterns do change but there's so much of the i want mine i want mine that it gets in the way i think you're right cleveland will be about the same that va center we have out on the east side is a is very busy so i can't imagine that they were gonna do anything to reduce it and the public will get their say i mean these recommendations have to go through 12 months of community public hearings then after that it goes to president biden and he makes his recommendations and after biden makes that then the congress gets to vote if they disagree with his recommendations right lots of time before it's final you're listening to today in ohio An almost nondescript building on Carnegie Avenue was in Cleveland News this week, identified as the warehouse where massive amounts of drugs were coming into the city from Mexico. It's in the Midtown neighborhood, which is bursting with investment, but still has lots of signs of years of its decay. We asked real estate writer Eric Heisig to tell the story of this building. And Laura, before we get to this, I learned yesterday that this has euphemistically called a Quinn special. Apparently, whenever I (laughs) offer an idea for a story, 
you guys all been in the background for years and saying, okay, it's a Quinn special. Because every morning, one of my first things is to send out a note saying, hey, how about we do a story on this? How about we do a story on this? And now I find I'm a pejorative. So, you know what? <laughs> for a guy who claims to know everything that goes on around I, I, here... I'm I know, really Leela, surprised I that you flummoxed. just learned this. Yeah, <laughs> Eric Isaac was, was he, he was walking out the door to go to the St. Patrick's Day Parade, and he goes, yeah, I published my Quinn special at 10. I was like, what? <laughs> What's that? And you all were like, it's you don't know what that you is. order up, Chris. Also, so, yeah, there's... <laughs> so for years, and when I said to you, Laura, do you call people up and say, I got a Quinn special for you? You said, no, no, no. We call and we describe the great idea. And after we wind down, they say, <laughs> the great idea. I mean, the, yeah, the great idea. <laughs> and then the reporter responds with, is this a Quinn special? So I would argue that most of these stories make up the best stories on our platforms. What did Eric find? Yeah, so Eric found that uh, this is this pretty nondescript uh, building brick building warehouse aside from a colorful mural on the side that says love can fix it it's at 7719 carnegie avenue so it's around 77 east 77th street um, at the edge of midtown and it's really close to the cleveland bagel shop and angie's soul food which those are the two ones i always know where the food places are i think on the street but um this used to be the tyler refrigeration equipment company that was back in 1975 and then ullman electrical bought it in 1994 in the 90s, it was also home to Eloise Carnegie Deli and Soul Fixins Restaurant that for a long time was home to the Carnegie Roundtable, where a group of influential black politicians, ministers, and business people regularly met. So obviously, it was bought by this Cleveland City employee, Christopher Ficklin, through his company, CNT Construction. It's about a half-acre site. He bought it in 2011 for $197,000 and operated CNT trucking out of it. And that's where prosecutors say it became part of this drug trade where where it would be, the warehouse was used to stash the drugs and then they moved it around from there. Yeah, I know. I, I, I was fascinated how much of uh, part of the fabric of the neighborhood this was. Uh, Blaine Griffin, the city councilman, talked about how important the restaurant was back in the day to the formation of the neighborhood and how the owners of that restaurant were major doers in the neighborhood. So it's, it's interesting that it goes from being that to being this cancer of the neighborhood where major drugs are being distributed. Uh, because that neighborhood is flourishing, Dealer Tire is nearby, and the very popular Popeye's Chicken is up the street. I suspect this will eventually be part of the renewal of Midtown, but it was an interesting Quinn special that uh, <laughs> revealed so I gotta its history. Ask, but you remember the acronym KEI, right? Keen editor, editor interest. interest. Yeah, yeah. But we use that for people that predated me. That was yeah. my it euphemism. Came up yeah, <laughs> I do I don't remember, remember that. that acronym. No, I don't. Oh yeah, whenever when I was Metro editor, whenever our editors wanted some bogus story, we called it Keen <laughs> editor. They interest. were bogus, and yours are great. Ideas. Unlike mine, which are interesting <laughs> stories, like Bob Higgs' Second Amendment piece a few weeks ago. We got three coming that'll be in the Sunday Plain hey, Dealer. Quinn special is a whole lot better than the pejorative s sandwich <laughs> <laughs> which is the which way layla is the other way to refer to some stories. of these yeah. but i wanted to okay check. go ahead, go ahead no Lisa. i was just gonna say i want to know if the quinn special comes with french fries 
<laughs> For the record, there's no. also an occasional menu of Laura specials, too. <laughs> the first yeah, time she... I heard that, I felt like I had made it. I was like, oh, <laughs> thank you, Bob Higgs. I feel so cool now. Okay, well, we do say you get some insight into how our newsroom works on this podcast. There you go. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. That winds up a week of news. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back next week.